Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the major topics and the interesting people that make up the futures, options, and clear derivatives marketplace. This podcast is available at FIA.org and on Apple iTunes, at the Google Play Store, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is episode two of FIA Speaks, and in this episode, we bring you the father of financial futures, Dr. Richard Sandor. Welcome, Richard, to FIA Speaks. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Walt. Yeah. Well, Richard, Doc Sandor is no stranger to our industry. He's chairman and CEO of the Environmental Financial Products and chairman and CEO of American Financial Exchange. He's a lecturer at both the University of Chicago School of Law and Gunguao School of Management at Peking University. His chief, he has been chief economist for the Chicago Board of Trade, an innovator extraordinaire, and an author of many books and articles. And of course, he is known as the father of financial futures, having helped develop the very first interest rate futures contract in the 1970s. That revolutionary innovation paved the way for what is today one of the largest and most important financial markets anywhere in the world. Before we get there, Richard, I wanted to start on how you came to be the the father of financial futures. I mean, you started out growing up in Brooklyn, ended up teaching at Berkeley, and now here you are, Chicago financial innovator. Take us back to the beginning. How did how did you be how did you decide to get into this industry, and how did you start? I think. Walt, like most people, you don't plan to be any place and you get caught up in in life. Um, I'm an economist by training and did a PhD at the University of Minnesota and my first job was uh, teaching at the University of California, Berkeley. And I traded stocks, Walt, you know, and it wasn't too hard to do well. It was the birth of Silicon Valley, it was Berkeley, you know, it was a very open environment. Um, And then a colleague of mine said, you know, gee, you're trading stocks, you should trade commodities. So I did what I generally do. I heavily researched it. I even introduced a graduate course in derivatives. Uh, I think it was the first one in the late 60s and talked about it and then I started trading. Um, Which commodities were you trading? I'm curious. uh, At that time uh, uh, everything from soybeans to uh, bellies etc. And I was just splashing around. Um, And I was curious at that particular time about 
these markets and, and really read up on them and the history and things like that. And the result uh, of that was in speaking to my broker, he said, you know something about commodities, and I understand, you know, you did a lot of quantitative work, econometrics and, and statistics and stuff like that. Um, we're thinking of starting an exchange in San Francisco and there are no locals and do you think we could develop an electronic exchange? And I said, sure. So I got a grant from Bank of America and the Commodity Club of San Francisco to explore the feasibility of setting an electronic exchange up. Um, it uh, was a formidable task. I didn't know anything about it, so I had allocated some travel time and flew back to Chicago and, and looked at the pits and I was mesmerized and I had to figure out whether it was an English auction or a Dutch auction, descending price, ascending price, what were the algorithms and things like that. And so uh, I put pen to paper and uh, developed an electronic thing, which is the subject of the last book that I wrote, Electronic Trading in the Blockchain. And, yep. and it was pretty wild and hairy. You know, the Financial Times, and I recently had an interview with them, uh, editor, I showed her the article from the 1970 that said someday the world will be nothing but a set of terminals hooked up to each other. And remember, this is before we had the PC, let alone the iPhone, and it was a ridiculous idea. Anyway, I thought it was feasible. There were too many vested interests, um, and so the uh, study was relegated to being just an academic interest. Uh, then I introduced a, a course that was similar to the derivatives um, and I had a lot of, of guest speakers and so I, you know, one of them said to me, hey, do you think you'd ever leave? Um, and I said, no, nah, I'm pretty happy here. It's, it's kind of good. And, and I get a call from the Board of Trade. Uh, they were hired Henry Hall Wilson, who was JFK's liaison to the House of Representatives. He wanted to professionalize. Nobody had this. Remember, the Board of Trade was the exchange at the yeah. time, you know. And, and he wanted to professionalize the staff, and they flew me in and, and said, you know, would you come and establish the economics department at the exchange? And Henry was, was you know, one of these six foot six, you know, new frontier guys. And it was all very glamorous. And one of the, the folks that I studied with, but not really for, because he was back and forth, was Walter Heller, who was the first chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under Kennedy, which is why I went to Minnesota, because I was interested in the political aspects. Anyway, we went back and forth, and they eventually um, asked me if I would join the exchange. And I said, 
Not really. Um, I'm kind of having a good time. It's Berkeley in the 60s, you know, hippy-dippy, you know, <laughs> the age of everything. Women's rights, African-American, black rights, gay rights, student free speech movement. I said, pretty good time here. Um, and they said, well, maybe we could bring you out for a year. And I said, well, two conditions. If I can take a one-year sabbatical, and I promise you, unambiguously, I will develop a first-rate economics department, then you will have a serious research. Two, I've got a couple of ideas that I want to study. Yeah, one of them is they're both a little edgy. Um, one of them is for financial futures, and the other is for catastrophic insurance derivatives. And if you can allow me to explore that while I build it, I'll rewrite the grain contracts, I'll develop new ag contracts, but I have a passion here. So um, I uh, agreed to come and that was in May of 72 and here we are 40 some odd years later. One year turned into two. I got here in 72. The great bean markets occurred and corn markets, the first Arab oil embargo, interest rates began to fluctuate. I was first told, go back to Chicago and Berkeley, you must be smoking something. You, there's no need to hedge interest rates, a bad idea. And uh, it wasn't viewed in a very friendly way. Then 73 happened. And then um, which you're familiar with, the result of 73 was that the commodities business needed a federal regulator. It was the Commodity Exchange Authority. And I sat down there with Phil Johnson and Henry and said, we need to get two things done. We have to redefine a commodity into something tangible and intangible and lace it through the legislation. And then Mike McLeod, who was, I had known Senator Talmadge um, and uh, he had been at a conference. I organized commodity conferences and convened them in the early 70s. And I got to know Mike McLeod, and the bill came out of the House, and it didn't have exclusive jurisdiction, and Phil and I worked back and forth, and ultimately in 74, the, the act was passed, and... Here we are. And here <laughs> we are, and funnily enough, the first commodity traded under the Commodity Futures Trading Commission was not a commodity. Right. It was your financial product. It was, you know, an interest rate uh, product. So, uh, Well, take me back to that period of time because it was, uh, you talked about Berkeley being an exciting, innovative, creative culture, but Chicago wasn't that far off either. You had the Chicago School of Economics here. You talked about Washington was revolutionizing the law. You had derivatives markets a bit in their heyday. Um, that must have been exciting to be a part of all of that, helping write the law to all, for all these things to 
to happen. I, take me back to what Chicago was like in the 70s. It was wide open. Yeah. Uh, you know, interestingly, I came back from one of these trips, Walt, to uh, Chicago, and I was describing uh, to my wife what it was like and she looked up she's a wise lady and said to me we're going to be living in chicago someday and i said no and then i made another trip and one of it was to meet a lot of speculators mm -hmm. and i said at the point these is these and it was only men at that time although the first woman was admitted to uh the exchange i said these men would trade anything. Um, it's really exciting. It's not like, you know, established securities exchanges. When I told them what I was doing, they thought that would be great. The only question they asked was, will it go up and down? Right, right. <laughs> so uh, it was greeted with uh, a lot of... Uh, I would say enthusiasm, new ideas, the notion of the University of Chicago, free markets, uh, these were things that were embedded. And people say to me, how do you compare Chicago to other cities? And I said, look, it's a, it's a big brawling teenager. You know, it's, it's, you know, filled with hormones and, and, while New York might be the investment capital of America and the Bay Area might be the venture capital of America, Chicago's the home of speculative capital in America. And I put those in three buckets and right. I said there's families and traditions, you know, and different cities around the world have different characteristics New York it's the stock market you know but there are generations of families in this city that believe speculation is a, a tried and true profession and there's multi-generations and so I found it vibrant there wasn't an idea that you couldn't bring up uh, that somebody would dismiss out of hand. And when, when you started to talk about this interest rate product that you, was in your head and you wanted to bring to the public, um, what was the reaction? Was, it, was there interest with this speculative community or was this a slower take up of this product over time that eventually launched sort of the financial futures industry? We did a lot of homework um, yeah. in, in terms, the first one was the Jenny May followed by treasury bonds. And um, it was a real interesting situation because while I was in California, I was exploring it and I tried to develop a way to grade mortgages. I got an 18,000 loan portfolio from uh, the major, or one of the major SNLs in Chicago, in California. And I tried to grade it, to turn it into a commodity. And what I found was when you ran a bunch of regressions, there were a lot of binary variables that affected the price or interest rate more than you would think. So for example, if you were divorced, 
you had a tougher time. If you were in the wrong neighborhood, you had a tougher time. If you were a woman, you had a tougher time. If you were African-American, so it, it was more qualitative than it was quantitative. Then the Ginny Mays came along and I said, okay, the first study ended up in a University of Chicago journal as, you know, as what I tried to do and was not able to do. And then I realized Ginny Mays. Now, California in 1968-69 was an undeveloped country. All of the building and new housing was in California. All the money was in the Northeast, in the savings banks. California had to, to attract that capital into the SNLs. They had to offer interest rates 1% higher to attract capital flows. And so I got networked in California. There was a guy by the name of Press Martin who was there, ultimately became chair of the Fed. Tom Bomar, who was in the thrift business, who ultimately became head of the Federal Home Loan Bank and the first CEO of Freddie Mac. And once I got to Chicago, I spoke to Tom and, and he said, I really need to hedge because Freddie Mac is buying mortgages and holding them. This was not part of the law. And I have 800 million of inventory that I need to hedge. So we got support of, uh, the, of Press Martin, of Tom Bomar, of the head of Ginny May, of every major mortgage banker, because they were in my backyard. And so it was, we put in, and the first application was filled with letters from the head of the Ginny May, from the head of the California Savings and Loans. It was replete with every major name in housing because housing construction was going on in the western part of the United States. So it made the application easier and was a better segue into fixed income than a bond was. The second thing is, maybe hard for you to believe, but there were no long-term bonds in 1975, you know. What was the standard term at that point? It was at max in 1958, I think. It doesn't sound ridiculous now. It sounded ridiculous. It was like the one and five-eighths of 65 issued in 58. But there was no long-term bonds. You couldn't issue anything over 10 years, and there were no 10 years. And then the bond futures were preceded because the government, and which was our hypothesis, and again, you didn't need to be a genius to step out in the Berkeley campus and realizing that this, the civilization of the 50s and the post-World War II was a civilization gone with the wind. We had an unpopular war, we had exploding deficits, and, and it, you didn't have to be a genius to figure that interest rates and, uh, would, would need to go up and to ration capital, etc. And then the government started issuing and then I think it was the 7 and 5 ace of 07 
um, which was nicknamed seven and five eighths of 2007, okay, in 77, was nicknamed the James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that's good. People used to call up the dealers and say, what? What do you? What's your market on the James Bond? You know, yeah. and, and so it was a funny sort of thing. But do you ever look back on and see the that market and the trillions of dollars that underlie that market with a sense of pride of, wow, this this was something I had, I was involved in helping create, and you must must have an enormous amount of pride behind that. I. I <clears throat> I have a tremendous amount of pride in more the the people that I've been. I'm a teacher, yeah. okay, and I gave a, a talk uh, a, a little bit ago, so let's call it in deference to you, April of uh, of 2019, and it was to Neba. And uh, a guy comes up to me and he said, you know, I took derivatives from you at Northwestern in 1977 and it changed my life, you know, mm -hmm. and it doesn't get any better than that. Right, you right. know, it, re it really doesn't. And, and, you know, I'll run into XYZ and they'll say, you know, I'm retired because of you. And I, I can't tell you how many comments I've had. And, and being a teacher and, it, it you know, and you, as you know, bonds were replicated in London. So it happens in London. It happens in Paris. I, when you and I met in China, I was yep. working for the Chinese Financial Futures Exchange on their bond contract. Yeah. It is, you know, first the people and second to scratch your head and say, geez, you designed something that exists for 42 years come August 18th of, of 2019 and it's identical and there are very few financial instruments and not only are they identical, it's been replicated in every major city around the world so yeah I do um, I, you know I sit back and I I say I can't believe it because I never thought you know this was a this was a puzzle I never met a problem I didn't like you yeah. know that needed a solution you know I and and so it's a great source of pride, but definitely way down the list compared to the students I've had and the people that I've, I've had the pleasure of working with. And, and that's the most exciting part. And, and another problem, to, to, to switch topics, another problem you identified after inventing this financial product is uh, the environment and, and trying to use markets and products to help with the environment. And I think the first time that I ever saw you was at a, a, a an acid rain conference on <laughs> sulfur dioxide that you and I was, I was an economics student and a, a law school student at an environmental law school and was fascinated by this product that had been invented to help, you know, trade allowances on, on, on acid rain. 
and that's when I moved to Chicago to take the bar. I went to one of your seminars, and and you didn't know me at the time, but uh, it had an influence on me on on you know these markets that I would eventually come really? to to become a part of. So t- take us back to that issue: is how did you then turn to was it was it a, a an interest and a concern for the environment and where how society was handling that? Was it more this was a problem that markets could help, or was it sort of a combination of the both that allowed you to turn to that big topic? A, a combination of both of the things. I got a call in 1989, and somebody said, hey, I heard that you commoditized interest rates, which nobody thought could be commoditized. Do you think you could commoditize air? And I said, sure, <laughs> you know, what's the issue? And, and the issue is, is an act pending in conference. So I had been to this rodeo before. So, you know, with the CFTC, with the EPA, and I said, I know how to do this. And I wrote a position paper for a group of lime producers because you you basically pass sludge uh, or take sludge and you take flue gas, you put it through, the lime takes the sulfur out and it's a chemical factory. And they were for this because they would produce the products that, that would solve the problem. And so I wrote the position paper, I walked around to some senators that I knew at the time through being in this business particularly, you know, there's a lot of interaction between our elected representatives and the futures industry. So I worked on that and and then uh, it's kind of like Patty Hearst, um, the Stockholm Syndrome, where you fall <laughs> in love with the people who ca- kidnap you. And, you know, I, I really began to say, I know acid rain's a problem, and I know how to solve this. And so we worked in the act. We got the Board of Trade to bring the first acid rain program. My mentor, Ronald Coase, who was a Nobel Prize winner, kicked off the auctions. And we did the predecessor to EFP, did the first registered trade. We worked with Brian McLean, who was then the head of the acid rain division of the EPA. Then, You'll see in the office a vast collection of photographs. So I'm unfortunately the kind of personality, if one is good, five's good, and ten's even better. So you to buy a photograph, buy five more, yeah. buy ten more. I'm a collector, that kind of uh, personality. So I got a call from the United Nations, and... Um, 1991, and he said, hey, we heard you worked on the acid rain program. Can you fly to Geneva? There's going to be an Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, and I know carbon's different from sulfur. Can you turn it into a commodity? And I, being the you know ever-optimistic enthusiast, said, sure. I got on a plane. 
they said, would you serve in a panel? And I delivered a paper in Rio in, in 1992. And that was the basis for the Chicago Climate Exchange. That was the basis for the Chicago Climate Exchange. Before we jump there, because I do want to talk about that, but the, the take people back. A lot of people don't remember uh, my generation below acid rain and how devastating that was to the Midwest and a human condition and lives were being lost and and this helped to solve that. I mean thousands of people were dying a year as a result of the knock-on effects of this. I mean describe it what was it was. A, you know. It was enormous. You couldn't drive. First of all when you drove through Gary, Indiana in the late 80s it was horrific. <clears throat> You know, and certainly go to Pittsburgh and stuff like this. It looked like London in the 19th century. It was dark and overcast, and it was all from coal-burning utilities. It was such a big problem that Michael Douglas made a movie called Black Rain. So it was a metaphor for everything that was wrong in the world, economic development, much about what you read about China now. And, and so we put together the program, and I, along with a lot of other people, you know, enjoyed it. And to give you an idea for those of people who are listening and don't know, um, it was violently opposed by a lot of people and the price forecast and that it would devastate the U.S. economy, it would cause power prices to rise, it would make the U.S. non-competitive. Program according to the EPA website um, is costing one to three billion a year. The emissions have been reduced by 80%, I want to say, from the 1980 levels. The health benefits alone, that is reduced medical expenses associated with lung disease, according to the government, are $125 billion to $150 billion, and 37,000 lives a year are saved because of the lack of it. I have never seen a cost-benefit like acid rain and uh, the, it's incredible and what I do lecture about it, I'm teaching now at the University of Chicago on, on environmental markets and, and have had a lot of people who you would know and who have come in and visited, you know, and, and talked about the Paris Climate Agreement and talk about the SO2 program, and we had Brian McLean back uh, to talk about it, and to a graduate student at Booth, the law school or public policy, you have to remind yourself that they were likely, they certainly don't remember who George H.W. Bush was, they barely know who Bill Clinton was historically. It's only because the Clinton family is around. And they were in the second grade when George W. Bush. Right. You know, you have to put yourself, and I do it every time I teach, I go through my, in my own course that 
my students today were born in 1998, you know, and they're graduate students, so I have to be very careful about what I refer to as if it was yesterday. I'm a 700-year-old guy, <laughs> a real fossil, and you really have to be very cautious how you address it. Then I got introduced to this Keeling curve, which is the measure of atmospheric concentration of CO2, and said, this thing is really, this is my kids and my grandkids. This is a game over. This happens. You and, know? and so you started the Chicago Climate Exchange. I think it started trading its products in 2003. Um, why it, it has taken off somewhat in Europe, but I think in the United States it's been a little bit more of a slow uptick, I, I guess mainly because it's not required. There is not a cap you know, on carbon. But talk a little bit about how that started and why it hasn't had as much of an uptick um, here in the United States, at least. Is that the reason? Yeah, I think it hasn't taken off in the United States for a couple of reasons. Um, when we started in 03 and 04, there was optimism after the Kyoto Protocol. And then at the beginning of the Bush administration, at George W., it was greeted with enthusiasm. Um, it, it died, I think, when, with bipartisanship's death. You know, there was McCain-Lieberman, there was Waxman-Markey, you know, the, there were various efforts. And, and very interestingly enough, and I think you'll be surprised at, at this, that, that the carbon markets in America are very much alive. And we had a couple of people come into the class. Uh, if I said to you, you're a total pro, what do you think the open interest in North American carbon markets are today? And what size do you think they are compared to gold, silver, and platinum? Um, 100,000. I don't know. Contracts. Yeah. 700,000. Wow. Which includes the regional greenhouse gas initiative in the 10 states in the Northeast, and Virginia just rejoined. Yep. California, cap and trade, and 29 states with renewable energy. So the North American environmental markets are 5% below the open interest of gold, platinum, and silver combined. So it's being solved at a regional multi-state level versus the federal level. Bingo, right. bingo. Yeah. And, and it's environmentalism is a ground up yeah. as opposed to a top down. And my belief, and you know, we started a climate exchange in China, the first one. And I would say that the rest of the world will have carbon markets while we're incapable of doing anything at the federal level. And America will emerge, having invented the idea, will be a slow follower compared to Europe and China. 
And it's my belief, if you want to look at what the world is going to be like, and these markets, Walt, take a long time to develop. Every market I've worked on, I, I put, I always say zero to two years is kind of like a toddler. Two to five is a teenager. And five to 20 is young adulthood and then adulthood. And every market I've worked on has taken me 10 years to invent and percolate. And I do believe that China and California will lead the way. First of all, California is where everything innovative comes, whether you like it or don't like it, you know, whether it's legalized pot or entertainment or personal computers or smartphones or electric cars. It's just, if you want to forecast, and I tell my kids, you know, just imagine that stuff, and it's an interesting theory, so you're a Midwestern guy. New ideas generate in the West and move across to the East. They rarely start in the East and get replicated in the Midwest and West. So I, I don't know what the psychopathy or you know the psychology is. So my belief is China and California will lead the world and uh, Washington will be the slow follower. Well, let's hope that's not the case, but I think you may be right. Um, no, I mean, yeah. as a forecast, I would hope yeah. it's not the case, but yeah. the, the fact is that uh, I remind people and my students, Walt, it's very important to understand that federal policy is not American policy. Yeah. Okay, and in the case of environmentalism, Seatbelt laws, yeah. you know, look at all of the things. These are local problems. Yeah. And they get driven upward. And it's not a political problem at the my or the generation below us. I mean, all our kids are talking about this. It's not to them it's not politics. It's this is our world we're dealing with. And they, they, they want to fix this and Everybody worries about First it. First of all, everybody who's against it doesn't understand they lost the war in the fifth grade. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the war was over by the time kids were able to read, you know, whatever they do today, National Scholastic or, you yeah. know, any of those magazines. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your current day job. So you're founder and CEO of the American Financial Exchange. Um, I think coming out of the financial crisis, there was a recognition among policymakers that LIBOR was a seriously flawed uh, alternative or an interest rate uh, reference. And uh, for the fact that there weren't transactions actually happening, there wasn't a mark to market, people were able to manipulate that product. And again, another big challenge and the big problem that you identified, you've come up with a product to help resolve with that, to come up with an alternative to that. The, the Ameribor. So tell us a little bit about this next project of yours. It's in the midst, it's, it's growing like gangbusters, thankfully. So talk, tell us a bit about this, this next uh, mission so, that you're on. So I look at, we sold our climate exchange to ICE in 2010. 
and uh, I'm a restless guy, and uh, we reformed the incubator, environmental financial products. You know, I visited kids in Atlanta and California, took two weeks of holiday, and my wife said, why don't you go back to work? <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough of you. <laughs> you know, um, so we reestablished this, and the, I think and do believe that the biggest challenge in the 21st century will be water. So we started working on water markets. Uh, did a study to how to develop a market-based solution to maintaining Great Lake levels. It's 21% of the world's water supply. We had a grant to study water basin trading in New Mexico. And then in 2011, I knew in the background about all of this LIBOR, but there's always a critical event, you know, that, that triggers something and it was that the Royal Bank of Scotland fired four people for manipulating LIBOR and so I called in Raphael and my team I said let's put water on the back burner this is over okay and, and let's make as economists, let's look at where we think the world will be in 2021, 10 years going back to that life cycle that we decided. So I said, number one, if there's four, there's 40 or 400, you know, and LIBOR will lose its preeminence. Uh, that's one. Nobody was talking about it then. They were criticizing it, but Nobody was talking about they'll fix it and they'll do this and they'll do that. But if you're a markets man or woman, this thing is, it's like judging making somebody president based on the polls, the Harris polls, four weeks before the election. You right. know, it's, right. it's just absurd on its notion. And it's an accident. I don't know if you know how LIBOR began. I think I've read the history, but yeah. based on something that you published, yes. Yeah, you know, it was uh, six banks that decided that they needed floating rates because interest rates were going to go up, and they talked the Shah of Iran into doing a, a floating rate note, and the six banks looked at each other and said, how are we going to reset? And they said, well, let's just call each other. I mean, think of this, $300 trillion in derivatives based upon... You know, Six banks calling each other. Calling each other and expanded, but, but whatever. So I said that, number one. Number two, in the meeting, we said zero interest rates were not sustainable. Okay, this was a, I'm a student of economics, the Civil War, World War One. You know, you could freeze them for a while. You could do whatever you like, but there's no way that zero interest rates are sustainable. They are relaxed reaction to a catastrophic occurrence. That's premise two. Three, the Fed would have to change and couldn't be on both sides of the market. Ultimately, it had a variant. You couldn't borrow from the government and lend to the government. And the Fed in 1913 was established to be the lender of last resort, not the borrower, right? It was supposed to be where you went when there was nothing left in the well, 
And so when 11, I called up our patent attorney and I said, why don't you start working on a patent for a general benchmark? It could be crude oil, etc." He said, what are you going to call it? I said, look, London has LIBOR, Europe has Eurobor, even China has Jibor. How could it be that, that 20 percent or 22 percent of the world GDP and there's no American benchmark? So can you trademark Ameribor? And, and it was available. And it was Amazingly. available, yeah. the American interbank offering rate. Yeah. So we trademarked it. And then we said to ourselves, look, the, the big banks have a vested interest in maintaining it. And the people who really are so far from 18 multinational banks setting a rate in London are the regional mid-sized and community banks. And so I got on a, a plane. I started a journey of, instead of going to New York, London, Paris, Shanghai, I was in Tupelo, Mississippi, Evansville, Indiana, Green Bay, Wisconsin, San Antonio, Texas, and then um, ultimately people said, much as I had heard about financial futures, go back to Chicago. We don't need you. Interest rates are zero. No, but they're going to fix right. LIBOR. What are we what hedging? Are, yeah. what, what are we hedging? Yeah. We don't have to do anything. I know that we fired all of our Fed funds traders. We don't borrow from each other. An idea of a peer-to-peer -peer lending network is ridiculous. And, and we're all happy. LIBOR works, and we get all the money we need from the government, and we lend all of the money we need to the government. I'm more persistent than smart, and so I go into a wall, I back off, I look at the damage, and then go back into the wall. Then we got a big boost in 14, um, because the Fed, started to look into LIBOR, it was clear it wasn't going away. And now all of a sudden the visits became more friendly. Yeah. It looked like we had survived 07, 08, and even a setback in 11, and the world was changing. And the reception grew. Same playbook, Walt, and in 2015, I contacted SIBO and said, you don't have an interest rate complex, CME does, ICE does. If you really want a complete portfolio, why don't you do it? I'll develop a benchmark, and then I'll give you the license to trade futures on it and ETFs and things like that. Same playbook. Uh, there's a guy in uh, New York at uh, Sullivan and Cromwell by the name of Raj Cohen. Got on a plane with Raj, briefed the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, the SEC, the CFTC, you know, went through the same playbook and we launched in uh, 2015 and we had four banks at the opening, Old National from your home state. Yep. 
um, associated for Wisconsin, MB in Chicago, and Frost Bank. And we had, we had uh, traded about 13 million a day, and we had, you know, four members and then 11. And, and we told the Fed that we would add corporates, insurance companies, non-banks, and here we are at 147 members. Most recently, John Deere joined insurance companies, broker-dealers, private equity, and we went from four credit lines. We have created $32 billion of new interbank credit lines. And our banks are roughly two, or our combined membership has got two trillion in assets. We're 12% of America's banks on the way to being 20. And we have uh, banks as small as Abacus in Chinatown in New York at 300 million, and even smaller ones in the correspondent to Key Bank, Huntington, Regents. Um, Bank sent in there, etc. So, um, and we're getting ready to launch futures and options because we have critical mass. Do you is this a product that is a winner take all sort of product, or are there many alternative rate references that will be in existence once LIBOR is put into the sunset in 2021? you get a sense? Yes, I, I have a very firm opinion, and that's a brilliant question, because the first thing that comes up is to a number of people, well, you know, you don't have big banks, and is this sulfur, and, and my reaction is, look, I've been in this business for 40 odd years. I have never met any asset class where there's one benchmark. I started at the Board of Trade. We had three wheat contracts, a spring wheat, a hard red, and a soft red. I watched energy futures emerge. We have a WTI, we have a Brent crude, we have a, a Dubai, and we now have a Shanghai. We have more stock indexes than we have stocks. And the same for fixed income. You've got more fixed income, short, medium, long, munis, high grades, junk. It is phenomenal to me. I absolutely don't understand the thought process that says there is going to be one interest rate benchmark for the entire world. Mm. Wait a second, we just tried that. <laughs> <laughs> Are we sure that, that we want to be the only asset class in the world that doesn't differentiate and tailored indexes? And so our belief is, hey, there's Indiana banks, Wisconsin banks, they have different credit profiles than the big city banks. They can live, the farmers and the ranchers is the old Oklahoma, you know, should be and can be working together. So the notion of one interest rate, I mean, I could be proven dead wrong, what do I know? But I just don't get it. I, and it flies in the face of, 
150 years of commodity trading, equity trading, everything that we've seen. Why does everybody always ask me, oh, were you going to lose? And, and I said, wait, <laughs> hold on. That, is, that question assumes that there's only room for one benchmark. You know, why? I don't, I don't have any ambitions to, to be the CMA. If I get 5 or 10% of the volume, you know, we sold our last company for $600 million and this we could sell at a, quite a big multiple of that with just 100 or 200,000 contracts a day. And the cap of it is, Walt, I've never done anything that I really don't believe in, okay? I believe that, that hedging would be very important in the U.S. economy. I believe that a solution to acid rain would be very, very important. I believe that global warming is an issue for my kids. I believe this country with no small intermediate and regional banks would be a poorer place. We funded a, a lecture by Jeremy Stein, who, who heads the economics department at Harvard, and, and it's the, the, the lecture is to talk about the role of, of regional and community banks. And he said, you know, the big banks stopped serving the small and medium-sized businesses. It was small before 07 and 08. It was killed in 07 and 08. It hasn't come back. My, you know, banks in Birmingham are going to lend $25 million to a Toyota dealer or $5 million to, uh, to buy a Deere tractor or to finance a mill company. That's not business the big banks even want. And do you want to see a country that's got two or three banks like automobile companies? I don't. I fully believe that these banks are an important fabric to our society. And, and I think the role that we can play is to make sure we deliver to them Ameribor as a regulated, transparent, market that can be used to them so they can lend to medium-sized businesses in their community. Well, I, I certainly would never bet against you. <laughs> like, I think, I think you, you know, lending is being pushed down to peer-to-peer. -to -peer. I mean, you see what's happening in, in China where they're able to move money between iPhones, between, and it's the same, you know, happening at a corporate level where it's, it's, you're able to push it down to smaller and smaller entities and that, I think that's the wave of the future. I think you're onto something. I think the peer-to-peer -peer network is is the way yeah. you do it and it's it's kind of out of which is what the Board of Trade was about in its inception. Yeah. You know it wasn't big green companies although they came to, to play a big role and, and so thank you. I really hope that your listeners understand that whether it's the environment or interest rate futures in China or a new benchmark that this country is so fantastic that you can do well and do good you know they are not incompatible and I'm hoping someday that 
you know, uh, I'm going to look back after a decade in it, call it 2021, 20, 2022, and uh, we will have built a very important American benchmark for Americans, <laughs> built by Americans, and that they serve, you know, all of these communities around the country, and I think they can live, and I think the big banks would argue that that they don't want to see the small banks go out of business either. Well, I do want to wrap up, and I know we're short on time, but um, you know, a few weeks ago, we lost a, a, a friend, dear friend of both of ours, Senator Richard Luger from Indiana, and uh, he was a member of the Agriculture Committee. He was back in the Senate when you were visiting Washington to help write the Commodity Exchange Act, and um, but he was also a big fan of yours, and many people may not know this, but he owned a 604-acre farm in Indiana with yeah. <laughs> a lot of black walnut trees on it that stored an enormous amount of carbon. Yes. Um, and so, um, in fact, I was at his funeral last week, and the, the, the walnut trees were talked about quite a bit by oh, his, really? his son, David Luger. And uh, Luger was very proud of those trees, and he was Black Walnut Farmer of the Year at some point. <laughs> But I remember talking to the senator about your interaction with him in the Chicago, uh, or then the, the Chicago Climate Exchange, that he was part of that and joined and was able to receive payments for his carbon storage. Um, so I'd like to, for, just to have you reflect a bit about your relationship with the senator. Um, and also one of, the, one of the quotes from his funeral in his program, I'll just read it to you, and I'd like you to react to this as well. So there's only like three quotes of his, of his entire career, but this was one of them. That grandchildren have taught me how important the future is. I try to look through their eyes and imagine what's in their imagination. What's the world going to look like when they're my age? That really does take a huge imagination. I'd like to hear from you, you know, what, what does the world look like through your grandchildren's eyes when they're our age? What, is, what do our markets look like? And also if you have thoughts about the senator and his career. Well, the first one, I, I, he was, you know, somebody that I always pedestalized. I thought he stood alone. He was a giant intellect. He was not a partisan. He, you know, the work that he did, whether it was with Sam Nunn or in my years of advocating, you know, on climate change. He jumped in. He was so proud of those trees. We had to measure them. Uh, I mean, and he was totally honest intellectually. And, and that ties into the quote. It, there was never a no with him, I found. You know, okay, we'll pay the Russians to destroy nuclear weapons. Yeah, I mean, he was, his mind was so elastic. And, and he was just open to any idea. I used to serve with Phil Johnson a couple of things. We had him, and I remember very fondly walking out of a hotel. Phil ran a little seminar group that I was part of, and we did it for four or five years, and we had Paul Volcker and a number of people in. Uh, Dick was part of the group, and I just, 
remember walking out of my hotel and running into he and his wife. And she was telling him, just relax, you know, and he, and he said to me, you know, I don't know what to expect here. His humility was remarkable. This is a very powerful U.S. Senator. He's worried about what he's going to say to three of us, you know, who, and he's nervous about that. And I thought, this is, boy, there's not too many senators would, would say that, or but powerful politicians, I don't mean it. And, and I do think the Senate and the House and Americans are going to come around to climate change, because in the end, we always do the right thing. But he's the first to do the right thing. And that's a, yeah. that's a different story than being the last person to do the right thing. Yeah, and Mitch Daniels was there, and he said, you know, all of us are selfish and venal, but we do it less often because we knew Dick Luger. That's I, that, that was, he was sort of the example for me, for you, yeah, for others. Yeah, for the same thing. And so I, you know, I wasn't there, but I can imagine, and it's very nice to hear. I think the world is going to be, look, I, the final analysis is, is, let me say two or three things. One, which we had the conversation last week, and I'll tell you, which is very interesting in my class. Um, I asked the students at the beginning of the year, at the term, to do two projects. One of them is to um, analyze a recent statement by 3,500 or 20 Nobel Prize winners that said the best way to deal with global warming as a tax. And I asked them to do a paper which, what are the assumptions that would make these Nobel Prize winners right? And what assumptions would make them wrong? Because we have to be assuming things mm -hmm. to know what the better public policy. So when are the Nobel laureates right and when are they wrong? Okay. The second question that I ask them is an externality for the listeners here, if you don't know, is a negative or a positive spillover benefit. So a negative is air pollution, a positive is bees that, that stand next to a farm and pollinate, and therefore the bee activity provides a something more valuable than honey, it's pollination. And and I say, identify a externality, a positive or a negative, and then show how a market can solve it. And you'll get graded on the originality of your concept and to the execution of it. So I've had fabulous things last time. Um, one of the groups of five people um, recommended a cap and trade for prison population as a way to, to deal with not incarcerating people. And they looked into the legal issues of it. How could states, or why would they focus on it? Because they could save money like carbon credits. They could sell these reductions in prison populations to other people that had more time and, and, and gun violence in the south side, a cap on that. 
this goes to saying that once human imagination takes over, it's boundless. Okay, it is boundless. I, I see water issues coming forth. We see, you know, these, you know, vegetarian burgers. You know, do you have animal herds? Do we necessarily think that there's going to be six hundred million pigs in China? You know. One of the things, and I think that this thing that we carry around, sitting there, this iPhone, you know, it's it's now I don't know a multiple capacity of the the computer I did a PhD on, which required a fully air conditioned basement in 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 both Minnesota and Berkeley. So I think that there's two things that that I say to the students, and I would say to the listeners: Look at what's happened in the last fifty years, okay? And why would you assume that change won't even be greater, okay? That that's not Moore's more. law, right? It's Moore's law. It's just going to get better. And the second thing I say is. Not that I say it. I think it's a bad short if you want to short American and worldwide humanity's ability to create and invent. You lose all the time. Okay, never make money shorting ingenuity. Okay, it's a bad, bad short. Three. I think there's only two. Franchises left. Okay, they run. It's not cars. It's not this. It's speed and flexibility. Those are really the only important franchises that you have. You got to be quick, and you got to be flexible, and you got to assume that ten and twenty and thirty years ago, nothing will look the same as it went. Does. And I challenge my students, and I challenge my grandkids, and challenge anything that you can think of. You know, people look, and when I grew up, in California didn't have international air travel until the late fifties. You didn't have baseball on the West Coast. You didn't have basketball on the West Coast. This is in the last fifty years. Sports was a mid Chicago and East game. Nobody played football. Hockey in Florida, <laughs> and in Southern California, <laughs> you know, Elon Musk, you know, the SpaceX thing. I don't know where that's going to go, you know. But it's exciting. And you shoot something up, and it lands in a room this size, twenty by twenty, after circulating. Guy. I couldn't have imagined this ten years ago. And, and, yeah, and Luger's quote sort of comes to to be true, right? It's, yes, it's boundless imagination. I mean, you can't even think. What you it's can't. Be like. You can't even think. And yeah. and it's it's all about tomorrow. And 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 I think what Luger had. I like to think I have it in some small way. You have it in a, in a small way. 
and that was evidenced by the time we had dinner in China, we have a joy in discovery, right? I mean, we share that. Right. It was fun, right? The, the acts on the stage, the dancers, you know, I could tell you were having a good time, I was having a good time. The people who don't get the joy of newness really miss out on everything, right? You just, you just miss a whole part of life if, if you don't, and somewhere along the lines, you, you get it when you're a kid and you lose it and you have to make sure that, that it's maintained. Well, thank goodness this Brooklyn kid came to our industry with like your boundless creativity and your, your intellectual curiosity. And thank you very much for being a part of our FI Speaks podcast today. It's a thrill for us, really it is. Well, it's my thrill. This business, um, the people in it, the opportunities I, you know, it's like the John Denver song, it gave me my life, my living. So <laughs> that to me is the warmth of, of, of this business. So thank you. Wonderful having you. So thanks to our audience for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at Speaks at FIA.org. Thanks for listening. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.